So did you, did everybody get a copy of this uh, sheet that was uh, with the uh, worship orders? If you did not get one, if you'd raise your hand, Max will be glad to bring you one. Okay, did everybody get one? Everybody got one? Oh, great. Okay. Oh, <laughs> the lady that made them. That's good. <laughs> All right. Um, say, I want to just kind of go off script for a minute and say, uh, we should rejoice and give thanks to God for the good financial report that's on the back of the worship folder. I just want to remind you there are a lot of extra um, um, expenses associated with a pastoral transition, and they'll be coming up very soon now that uh, Pastor Mike has been approved by the Presbytery, so um, it's uh, not a time to slack off, so to speak. And uh, anyway, all right. So... Um, I've been uh, speaking of what I think are five essential elements of the Christian life, worship, prayer, Bible study, fellowship, and outreach or service, and we come today to fellowship. Uh, You may not agree with that list, that's okay, I just ask you to develop your own list, because I think such a list is helpful, profitable for individuals in saying, what should I do and how am I doing, and the same for congregations. And we come today to think about fellowship, biblical fellowship, and uh, I want to do that from Hebrews uh, chapter 10. I'm mindful that I preached a part of this text a while ago, and so I'm not going to, not too long ago as a matter of fact, um, and I'm not going to uh, emphasize that part in this message. Uh, In the New Testament reading this morning, um, uh, from 1 John 1, 1 to 4, It talks about uh, fellowship with the Father, and it's talking about fellowship with one another. Uh, The fellowship has a a vertical dimension with God, and it has a horizontal dimension with one another. Um, We touch on both of those in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper that we'll be observing later. I'm thinking in this sermon primarily about fellowship as it's considered horizontally, our fellowship with one another. Those two are related. I don't want to dig into that uh, this morning. I call the horizontal fellowship one anothering because it's a scriptural term, and that's why the heading on this sheet that you've been handed uh, is one anothering uh, rather than fellowship. I want to push us straight to the scriptures as we consider it. Um, And it seems to me that at least a part, if not a very significant part, of what fellowship horizontally should uh, considered should look like is defined on the one anothering sheet, right? Um, The Bible says we should love one another, be at peace with one another, wash one another's feet, be encouraged by one another's faith, and, and so on, be devoted to one another in brotherly love, give preference to one another in honor, and on and on. I've got 35 things listed there. I don't profess that that's exhaustive, but it's pretty exhaustive. If you find others, let me know and I'll update my list. Uh, certainly these things are part of it, okay, a part of it. Now, it's one of the reasons I approach it this way, and, and I consider this a frequent problem in most churches is we substitute the world's version or definition of fellowship for biblical fellowship 
um, uh, Christ's definition of fellowship. And, and uh, we do that often by saying of, of things that non-Christians can do, uh, that's fellowship. And we had fellowship. I'll give you an illustration of that. Maybe it'll help you. So years ago, um, uh, I don't know, 25 or so years ago, uh, it became known to a, a, an assistant pastor or two of mine at the church, I'd never been to a professional baseball game. And they looked at me like, you old, you know, geezer, you, you know, you got to get with it. You got to get out. You got to do a few more things. And, and, and so three weeks later, we're heading to Atlanta to watch the Braves play. And, um, and we had a good time, except Jamie, the big guy, he had played tackle on a football team. He muffed a, a foul ball he should have had. But anyway, we had a great trip. And the question is, many would have said, well, we had great fellowship. But did we? Did we? We laughed a lot. We shared a meal together. We talked a lot. We sat with one another. And my answer to that is, well, let's look at the list. Did we do the, any of these 35 things that are listed in what we did? And the answer is, not really. Now, this is where, and I realize I have exasperated other Christians before you with what I'm doing here this morning, okay? So, I, I, I don't, it doesn't bother me a bit, okay? If you want to throw something at me, just give me a warning and I'll duck. But a lot of times we say, we had fellowship and you didn't have biblical fellowship. And, and therefore, the, the substitute crowded out the real. And we wonder why we feel alone and lonely and isolated in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. For instance, one of the things on this says, bearing one another's burdens and thus fulfilling the law, law of Christ. Exhorting one another, forgiving one another as God in Christ has forgiven you. Oh, you mean I got to do those things to practice biblical fellowship? We can't just have a Coke and cookies? That's right. That's right. Let's pray. We'll read the text and then see what God's telling us from this part of his word. Lord, help us to know, to understand, to apply, to repent where necessary. Let the spirit that inspired these words illuminate them to our understanding. Help us to know, Lord, what it is, your will, your ways with your people things that you've given us so we'll have a rich and full and abundant life. Father, again we ask you'd use a wretchedly sinful crooked stick to show the narrow way of the Lord Jesus, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews 10, beginning at verse 19, this is written to a group of persecuted Christians, uh, I think of Jewish ethnicity, who have been formerly following Jesus in spite of persecution. Now another wave of persecution is coming upon them and they're in danger of, of, of falling away, okay? Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, 
for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there, is no, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has spurned the Son of God and has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has outraged the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul will have no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Amen. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the words of our God will never fade. They will abide forever and forever. At first glance, this passage, I think, does not seem to have present tense, this day relevance for you and me. Verses 32 and following show that these people were in a significantly different situation in former days after they had become Christians, after they were enlightened. They endured a hard struggle with sufferings, publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, sometimes being partners with those so treated, and it goes on and on. And yet I believe there is a real connection between them and us, and I want to tell you what it is. And to do that, I'm going to relate a a sentence that a fellow minister shared with me one time many years ago. He said something like this. People say to me, this is the pastor telling me this story. People say to me, I have all these bad things going on in my life. I think I'm in spiritual warfare. I think I'm in spiritual warfare. Now, the assumption behind that statement is that spiritual warfare is an unusual thing, an infrequent thing, an occasional thing. But I think the Bible's picture is rather different from that. I think the Bible's picture is that the Christian is or ought to be constantly at war with the world and the flesh and the devil. And that such conflict is not unusual or infrequent Rather, it is regular and it is routine. It is the normal Christian life to be in warfare with the devil, the world, and the flesh. 
We refer to 9-11 as the day the world changed. Friends, things did change on 9-11. But the day the world really changed was the day that Adam and Eve sinned and ate the forbidden fruit and rebelled against God. And then there was enmity between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman throughout all eternity future, an enmity that is still with us even now. That is why we are at war right now. If you said to me, Alan, when do you experience it the most? I would say when I prepare to preach. Uh, Saturdays, or I gather the ingredients during the week and cook the meal on Saturday morning, so to speak. That's the way I refer to my homiletical method. And, and Saturday morning can be a slugfest with the devil. I would think Mike will tell you similar things when he comes. And it's one of the reasons you should pray, you should pray for him if you expect to hear the word of God from him on Sunday mornings. Right now... According to the parable of the sower, the devil is trying to pluck the word out of some of your minds and hearts before it even soaks in and takes root and bears fruit. Uh, the, 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 the pathway here, the Satan comes and plucks the word away. When does that happen? Well, in Bible studies and sermons and other times. When you order a meal uh, and, and the waitress says, what do you want? And I'll sometimes say, you mean what do I need? <laughs> Shall I order what I want or what I should order? Uh, we're always fighting this battle. When you turn on the TV, are you going to watch something that you, sh- you ought to watch or something you ought not to watch? Or grab your phone or pick up a book or a magazine or decide what to drink and how much to drink and to shop at the store online when you're in conflict to admit your part in the problem or seek to self-justify, I mean, there's a battle raging all the time. And so I think there's a very significant connection between the Hebrews and us. They and we are in spiritual warfare every day. Yeah, the details are really, really different, I know. But the devil is scheming against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ every day. The devil is scheming against Christians every day. The spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places are still arrayed against the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Sometimes in open warfare, sometimes in guerrilla warfare, but always arrayed against the church. Now, as we approach this text, only two points again today. Um, Remember... The, the pattern here. Uh, twice it says in the text in the ESV in verse 19, since we have, right? And then in verse 21, since we have. Begin with what we have. And then it moves on three times to say in verse 22, let us. Verse 23, let us. Verse 24, let us. You've got the indicative truths of the gospel followed by the imperative uh, commands or, or, or consequences of the gospel. So please, please, please note that pattern. What we have precedes what we're to do. Our comfort comes before exhortations about our conduct. If you try to live on the imperatives alone, if you read it and all you hear are the imperatives, you'll either be proud, well, I think I did it, or you'll be in despair because you'll know you didn't, okay? So, okay, 
uh, what we have in verses 19 and 21, he mentions two things. Uh, since we have, he mentions these two things, and he's summarizing what he said in the book up to this point. And the first thing we have in verse 19, a great thing, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. We have confidence to enter the holy places, the holy place, by the blood of Jesus. Back in chapter 9 at verse 12, it says this, He entered, Jesus entered once for all into the holy places, not by the means of the blood of bulls and goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Jesus has gone into the true sanctuary. You know, when... Uh, when they were given, the Israelites were given the pattern for the tabernacle and then the temple in the Old Testament, God was very clear to say the tabernacle is patterned on the heavenly tabernacle. In other words, which one is the original and which one's the copy? Well, the earthly's the copy. And the original is in heaven, the, the real tabernacle, the heavenly tabernacles in heaven. And so the pattern was, is there and, and, and the earthly was formed and there was a curtain that separated the holy of holies from everything else and only the priest, only once a year, only with blood could he go into the very holy of holies. And, and this text says, since we have confidence... And, and the word confidence there is not so much a subjective confidence. I feel like I can make it if I try. But it's, it has a more objective sense since we have the authorization, since we now have the right to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. Sometimes the word has a subjective meaning like it does in verse 25. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence in verse 35. But here I think it's, it's clearly uh, objective and says, look, we have the, the right, we have the authorization to enter the holy place, to enter into where God is. If we trust Jesus, if we're wrapped in the robes of His righteousness, and we have this confidence because, it says, to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. The blood we celebrate this morning in the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. Blood that is acceptable to the Father. Blood that atones for sin. Blood that propitiates the Father's wrath. Blood that cleanses the unclean. Blood that gives certainty of access into the very throne room, into the very holy of holies. And it's, it's because of this blood that you, as a Christian, right now, have as much access to the Father as you will ever have. You have a right to access with the Father if you believe in Jesus. Now, am I saying your experience of fellowship with God won't grow? No, I'm not saying that. It will grow. But our right to fellowship with God is as great right now as it will ever be. Think of marriage. You get married. And you have a right to one another's body. The Scriptures are clear about that in 1 Corinthians 7. You get married, you have that right. Your experience of that right grows, but the right is there all along. What could happen in the future? Tell me, friend, what could happen in the future that would give you more right 
to go into the very throne room of God, to have access to God, what could give you more right than you have now? Because Jesus has shed his blood for you. And I submit there's, no, there's nothing that will happen in the future that will give you more right to access than you have right now. What could it possibly be? I don't really know. So, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain. I mentioned that earlier, the curtain, that is through his flesh. A new covenant, temporally new, qualitatively new. He's teaching the priesthood of all believers. And he's saying, look, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have a right to access God. And that's a great thing. And the second thing he says is, and since, in, in, um, in verse uh, 21, since we have a great high priest over the house of God. The house of God is now the church. The house of God is the place where God dwells, Right? Yeah, that's the house of God. Where does God dwell now? Well, symbolically uh, and really, uh, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost, uh, the Holy Spirit indwelling all believers in the church, uh, people of faith, uh, not people of the flesh as formerly in the Old Testament. Uh, matter of fact, in, in Romans uh, 2, in 28 and 29, uh, the Apostle Paul makes that very clear when he distinguishes between... Uh, for no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly. Now, when he says Jew there, he's talking about a, a, a member of the family of God. No one is a, a member of the family of God who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical. But a Jew, that is a person who's of the covenant of grace, a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And so he's saying, look, he's saying, look, um, that if you are of faith, then you're of the faith of Abraham and you're in the family of God, the Israel of God, to use the New Testament phrase. And the picture here is of Jesus being over his church as its Lord, as the final, sufficient, and acceptable priest, ruling and protecting and loving. And so Christians have a lot because they have Jesus, a full and final priest who's offered his own perfect blood, a full and final priest who's gone into the heavenly places behind the curtain, a full and final priest who has opened the door for us to go there, to go into the very God. And that's good news. And if you're not a person of faith, that can be true of you this day, if you will put your trust in him if you never have before. Okay, so that's what we have. Those are the uh, indicatives. Those are the gospel truths. That's the comfort now, what conduct is supposed to flow from that? What Christians are to do? And there are three things he mentions. These are exhortations. In verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us continually draw near to God. And I think in the context, he's talking about public worship especially or even in times of spiritual warfare. You know, sometimes when people, when things are not going the way they want them to go, they say, well, I'm not going to go to church. I'm not going to go to worship. Why? 
Well, I don't know all the reasons why. One of the things could be that, well, God, you're not performing the way I, I wanted you to perform in my life. And, 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 and you're not doing this right, and therefore I'm not going to go worship you. Uh, boy, what an what a ugly reason for not being in worship. To dictate to the sovereign, providential, all-caring God, the God that sent Romans 8 that we read earlier to his church, and say, well, God, if you're going to let these things happen in my life or cause these things to happen in my life, however you want to spend that, then I'm not going to worship you. Oh, Wow. Maybe they were thinking that way, right? Maybe some of them were absenting themselves uh, from, from public worship, and, and, and he's encouraging them to draw near to God, um, uh, to, to come to worship, and, and with a true heart, that is a faithful heart, in full assurance of their faith that God does all things well, the Romans 8 type faith. And, and draw near, remember your hearts are cleansed, that's what he says, um, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. I, I hope you noticed, I started to point it out then, but decided I would wait until now. Uh, in the prayer of confession this morning, uh, I already mentioned the first stanza, uh, but at the very end it says, cleansing my conscience of offense before you and others. Um, there's a lot to be said about our consciences. Um, and, and certainly I don't want to get off on a big uh, side road on the conscience right now, but I will say this, that if the blood of Jesus Christ is, is sprinkled upon the guilty conscience, the guilty conscience should be cleansed. And if your conscience before God is not cleansed, I want you to ask you, I want to ask you to ask yourself, have I really understood and applied the gospel to my life? That's a pretty thick smoke, I know. <laughs> but I want to ask you to think about that, to pray about that, consider that. If your conscience uh, is still bothering you about sin before God, have you applied uh, the, the gospel to you. In chapters 9 and 10 of Hebrews, uh, he mentions conscience uh, four or five times. Having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience. That, that's, that's the text. Um, that w Since we have a um, verse 22, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled, the, 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 the tense of the original, with our hearts having been sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, and our bodies having been washed with pure water. It's a past tense. And, and the bodies having been washed is a symbol of, symbol of, of our having been cleansed and, and sin being removed by the blood of Jesus, a blood that is symbolized in or cleansing that's symbolized in water baptism and is remembered in the Lord's Supper. So the, the writer's encouraging them and us to confidently draw near to God in worship, even in the midst of spiritual warfare. And I ask you, will you do that? Will you do that? I was talking to some people uh, a couple of weeks ago actually before last Sunday, who are attending Henson Baptist Church uh, in, uh, on the east side of Portland. And some of you may know that Henson was sustained damage because the offices 
uh, uh, head offices of a crisis pregnancy center are in, in the basement at Henson. And the people were saying to me, pray for us as we go to worship this Sunday because once a month in the summer, Henson holds worship outside as a witness and testimony, and we're not sure whether the Antifas and others might or might not show up. Let's think about it. Draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith, with a heart sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water, even in the midst of a legitimate threat and the thought of bodily harm. I'm reading um, a biography of George Whitfield right now. George Whitfield was a name you don't know. Uh, he was a, many of you don't know, rather. Um, and uh, he was a, a British guy who preached in America during the Great Awakening. And um, uh, he, they used to get beaten. They'd preach in, in, the, in the fields and preach in town squares. And they would get ro- rocks thrown at them and horse manure thrown at them and rocks thrown at them. And people would come to where they were staying and, and break out windows and homes and burn homes down. And there's always opposition. When the kingdom is expanding, there's always opposition. This church grows. I'm, I'm praying this church will grow. But I'll tell you, if you grow, uh, there'll be opposition. There'll be problems. And you'll have to want it. You'll have to endure it. You'll have to press forward in the face of it. It's just the way uh, warfare works. Secondly, it says, look, okay, because of the good things, the, the, uh, the um, indicatives in verses 19 and 20 and 21 let us draw near in verse 22. Let us hold fast in verse 23. That's the one I preached a while back. I'm not going to say a whole lot about it, but it's uh, let us hold fast the confession of our hope. That is, let us continue to confess uh, the, the truths of the faith uh, in, in lip and life. Do that without wavering, uh, without wavering in the face of the warfare, the spiritual warfare they're, they're facing. Because God, he who promised, is faithful. He's constant, reliable. He will do what he said he will do. He will complete what he has begun. So then, thirdly, in verse 24 and 25, and let us continually care for one another. Let us consider how to stir one another up to love and to good deeds. What does that mean? Let us consider it. Let us think about it. Pray about it. Study the scriptures about it. How can I stir up my brothers and sisters in Christ to love God and to love one another? How can I stir up my brothers and sisters in Christ to do good works that God has prescribed in His Word? And the implication clearly is that love and good deeds are good things that need continual encouragement, right? Why? Well, Matthew 24, verse 12, the love of many will grow cold. You've known people like that. They made a profession. They got off to a good start in the faith, and they fell away, just like the parable of the sower in the second and third soil. Uh, they fell away. And, and love, the love of many will grow cold, Jesus said in Matthew 24. And, and in Galatians 6, verse 9, it says, let us not grow weary of doing good. Consider one another how to consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, because people grow weary in doing good works. 
I do. I think some of you do. And so we have responsibility and we have ability in these areas. And what is that, how does that apply to us? Well, we've we got to be so connected to one another to be able to do that, right? You've got to be together in a context that encourages stirring one another up to love and to good deeds. You've got to be in a context where these things that are on this sheet define the Christian life for you and the life of your church. I remember sharing this with a church in Huntsville, Alabama. My first interim pastorate after I retired. And one of the elders told me, frankly, he said, you know, we don't have much one another around this church. I've read through your list and it's just not here. We're not where we ought to be. I said, well, okay, get with the program. <laughs> you know, you got, you, got a, you, got, you got a pattern, you got the teaching of God. It says, not neglecting to meet together is the habit of some. You see, these people were afraid. There's people like the people at Henson. Somebody's saying, I'm just not going to go this Sunday because it, it could be dangerous. He's talking here about the habitual neglect of fellowship or meeting together with a view to encouraging one another and stirring up one another to love and good deeds. Especially, all you, and all the more as you see the day drawing near, the day of final judgment. So, this requires active participation in the gatherings of the Christian community. It requires small groups, I believe, once a church reaches a certain size. To neglect worship and encouraging one another to fail to appreciate the significance of Christ's priestly ministry. I said once in a sermon uh, many months ago now, to the extent that you think you can live the Christian life alone, to that extent you do not understand what the Christian life is. I stand by that. You look at the sheet. How can you do those things alone? How can you do those things out of contact with, contact with other believers? I don't see how you can. No one in his or her right mind wants to go into battle alone. Nobody uh, that's ever fought in a foxhole wants to be alone. No one who's ever flown a fighter jet wants to fly without a wingman. Why not? Because in that context, if you're alone in a foxhole or alone on a battlefield or flying without a wingman, you are too vulnerable. In a similar way, no one really thinking about it would try to live the Christian life of spiritual warfare alone. We are just too vulnerable. Yet many try to go it alone. I think often because of pride, some because of unbelief, Am I really in spiritual warfare? Would the devil really want to attack me? Indeed, it seems to me the fact that so many of us try to live the Christ, Christian life alone is proof that we're not consciously aware that we're at war. Because if we knew that we were at war, we would say to our fellow believer, come jump in this foxhole with me so we can fight together. Some are just unaware and others are unwise. Still others are embarrassed by the battles they're fighting. Am I really this bad? And Jesus loves me? 
If I was more spiritual, would I struggle this much? Yes. <laughs> yes, you would. Surely, I'm the worst person in the room. There's some of you here today that think that, right? You think if everybody knew what's in my mind and heart, they would know I'm the worst person in the room. Friend, every person in the room that the Spirit of God is working in thinks the same thing. Really? Really. They know their need. We are at war, all of us. The world, the flesh, and the devil want to destroy us. If I told you that someone was trying to seduce your spouse, you would be alarmed, wouldn't you? You would. Rightly, you would be alarmed. If I tell you that the enemy seeks to seduce your soul and the soul of your spouse and the soul of your children and the soul of your family and the soul of your pastor and the soul of your elders, would you really be surprised? What should we do? Well, Paul says in Ephesians 6, put on the full armor of God. And in addition to that, with a band of brothers and sisters meeting together regularly, believing the gospel, working the gospel out in Christian love and encouragement in one another, and we move forward. And as we move forward, the devil attacks. And we continue to one another, one another. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for this word. I pray that you would help us to one another, one another that you would help us to understand, seek, work out biblical fellowship in our lives and the life of CDP. Lord, it's, it's not easy, but with your spirit, all things are possible. And I pray it will happen here. And the bride will be even more beautiful as a result as you contemplate coming for your bride someday before long. I pray that you would help all the members. I pray you'd help the elders. I pray you'd help Pastor Mike. Did you, I pray you'd help us to take the word seriously. Uh, Father, we confess that as those who grew up in the West, uh, we, uh, we're very individualistic. Uh, we're very uh, comfortable with being alone. But we're also very vulnerable. And so I pray that you'd help us to see the realities that are out there and to put on the armor of God and find a band of brothers and sisters to fight this battle with until the day that faith becomes sight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen.